Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Amen. Good morning, afternoon, evening. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Alessio. Thank you. It's very dramatic in passing me the water like this. Should not under the quietly, but anyway. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. I mean, no, it's not often. Sorry, I keep saying that. My name is Marco, if you don't know me. My wife's giving me the wet eyeball there. She's saying, get on with it now. Uh, everyone that's joining us remotely, it's good to have you. I don't know about you, but I feel like the attack is real today. It just keeps coming in waves. You know, you think you've just overcome the enemy, and then he comes, and he just wants to discourage you, disappoint you. I don't know if anyone else is feeling that, but I certainly feel that way today. But hopefully, by the time we're done with this morning, we'll have the victory, right? Because we do have the victory. The victory is ours in Christ. He's given it to us on the cross. It's not like something we can lose. We have it. We've just got to realize it. And so I'm preaching to myself right now, guys, okay? Just give me a hand. Yeah, I'd say, Mark, yes, believe it. Amen. Amen. Three announcements quick. Worship night is coming up on the 9th of November. If you've never been to one of those, you definitely want to be to one of them. And I can say that to you because you've never been, and you don't know what you're missing. Literally, you don't know what you're missing. It's going to be awesome. 9th of November, please put in your calendar, uh, in your, sorry, in your schedule. We call it a diary. Whenever I say to people, put in your diary, they're like, why is it put in my diary? You know, that's something I, like, what do you call the journals, right? So put in your calendar, your schedule. 9th of November, 7 p.m., it's going to be awesome. Just a quick reminder of the 14th of November, we've got a couple of things happening. We are ordaining two new eldership couples. We announced this last week. That's going to happen in the first service. We do have a good friend and longtime mentor of our spiritual father, in fact, Marcus Herbert, coming to do that ordination. He'll be preaching at both service, but the actual ordination will happen in the first. He's coming all the way from South Africa to do this, and so you don't want to miss that Sunday. Uh, even if you can't make it to the ordination, come to the second service, you'll be blessed. And then we're also going to be doing our baptisms on that Sunday. We were going to do them on the 7th, but we've pushed it out to the 14th. So it's going to happen in between first and second service. So if you need to be baptized or know of somebody that wants to be baptized, please let us know so we can put you on the list uh, and get you sort of situated with that. Yeah, those are all the announcements. So if you are new to Hope Rock Church, welcome. Uh, I think everyone's pretty familiar with us by now. I think I don't see any new faces around necessarily. Some of you are newer than most, but a lot of you have been here for at least some of these last few installments that we've done in the Modern Reformation. We are in the series, and today, if you don't know this, is Reformation Sunday. So on the 31st of October, 2000, not 2000, that's 500 years later, 1517, Martin Luther nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral his 95-point thesis, therefore marking the day that we celebrate today as Reformation Sunday. And we've been going through this series titled The Modern Day Reformation. We asked ourselves a question when we started the series, and the question was this. Do we need a modern-day reformation today? And when I say we, I'm talking about us as individuals, us as a church, and the church at large across sort of the nation of America and the world. And over the last five weeks, we've been trying to figure out the answer to that question by looking at some foundational truths, the solas, the alone statements, the truths that could stand alone that the reformers came to the realization of and rediscovered during the Reformation. And so we've done four of them so far. Today is number five. The first sola we, we unpacked was sola scriptura, that the word of God alone is the final authority in our lives. Not the newspaper, not the news, not the government, not a circumstance, not an event in your life. The word of God is the final authority in our lives. Then we looked at grace. By grace alone, we are saved. Grace is a gift. It's unmerited. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We get given it by God. Jesus literally resurrects us from the dead. Then we looked at faith. It's by faith alone that we are saved. 
faith in who? Jesus Christ. But whose faith is it? It's his faith to us. So God chooses us. He gives us faith. And we're able to participate with him in this beautiful thing called salvation. Hallelujah. Last Sunday, we looked at Christ alone. Solus Christus. And that Christ is the only mediator we'll ever need between us and the Father. We don't need somebody else. We don't need somebody to stand in the gap to tell us what God is saying to us. We don't need somebody to, to be a mediator bef uh, between us and God. And I'm talking about a human being because Jesus fulfilled that ro role on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is enough for our sin. We don't need to add to it. He doesn't need our penance. He doesn't need our confession to priests. He needs us to go to him and his sacrifices washed us clean. He also is completely sufficient in providing us with salvation. Nothing can take it away. You can't lose it. You can't throw it away. If God gave it to you, it's yours and it belongs to you because he paid for it on the cross. And so this morning we're going to continue looking at this because I think that once we've unpacked at least four of these five, we've started to realize that we do need a little bit of a readjustment in the church. We need a little bit of a realignment back to the foundations of Scripture, back to the truths that God wants us to hold to. And he wants us to free people in that. It's, it's interesting to me because whenever God does a big move, whenever he restores truth to his people, it's always for freedom. It's to release people into the fullness that he's got from him. And I'm trusting that after this series, we'll find a freer, more powerful, and more uh, functioning church, not just with us, but as we impact the people out there that we call to reach. So let's bow our heads, and then let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity that you've given us today just to gather in your presence. Help us as we unpack your word to hear from you and you alone. I pray that this morning you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Today is about you, Jesus. In fact, everything we do in our lives should always be about you. But we commit this day and dedicate it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through Solid Deo Gloria today, which means literally for the glory of God alone. And it's interesting to me, and it's not lost on me, how today... Most of the world is celebrating Halloween. I say most of the world now because it's really become a world holiday. It's generally started here. We never knew what Halloween was when we were growing up, right? We never celebrated in South Africa. But now I see all my friends in South Africa celebrating it too. America's exported a lot of fun stuff all over the world. But as the world celebrates Halloween, we are here celebrating the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? You know, and I was driving down 620, and as I was looking over sort of, you know, Lakeway and the valley and all of this, the Lord was just like... It's so important that we realize that we are taking a stand today for the king and the kingdom. I don't want to mess anybody's fun up, but I'm not trying to be like the party pooper here. But what I am saying to you is that the glory of God is the highest possible thing that we could ever wish to attain in our lives to represent in all that we do. And so I'm excited that today we get to do it. During the Reformation, Sola Dei Gloria came about as an understanding that Scripture teaches that everything we do in life, Every moment we live, every breath that we breathe, and everything we do in between is to be lived for the glory of God alone. This was sort of what the reformers called the doctrine of vocation, the doctrine of what you do with your life. Now, vocation applies to two things in the context of what I'm saying here. One is that what you do in terms of work matters, and what you do in terms of your time and things outside of your work matters. No matter what job you've got, you have to remember one thing, that God placed you there. And so whether you are cleaning houses, whether you are running a huge tech business, whether you're a pastor in a local church, whether you're a child, you know, going through your schooling, whether you're a college a student, it doesn't matter what you do, God's put you there in that season for that moment. And so you've got to do that thing, whatever that thing is, not for your own glory, but for his glory. Amen? The Westminster Shorter Catechism 
developed in 1646 and 47, asks a question. And the question is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of us as human beings? What is the purpose of us as God's creation? Because all of us were created by God, right? Well, they answer that by saying man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's what today is about. It's about understanding how we can best glorify God. And it's this all-consuming purpose that led the reformers of the 16th and the 17th century to come you know, to this realization that they needed to fundamentally shift the way the church had seen people, viewed people, and taught things. For centuries, the church wanted you to believe that there were certain jobs that were holy, certain things that you could do that would bring greater praise to God. And so unfortunately, if you weren't in that job or in that vocation, sorry for you. You could never attain to that person's holiness. It just wasn't for you, clearly. At the same time, they also believed that certain activities were holy. And so if you were just a normal Joe on the streets, sorry, I mean, I mean, there's nothing normal about you, Joe. But if you were just a normal man outside there doing what you do and you were functioning as best you could, and you could never attain to a holy vocation. What you could do was you could go and do holy things. Like you could go to church. That was considered to be a sacred assembly. You could go to confession and confess your sins. That was sacred too. Uh, you could do penance. Or you could do these churchy things. And the reformers wanted people to understand that that actually is not found in the scriptures. You can't see that anywhere. There is no such thing as a sacred you know, activity versus a secular activity because all activities, every moment of every day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, is to be lived for the glory of God. They also realized that whatever job you do is holy unto the Lord. We are the priesthood of all believers. The Bible teaches that, and we say that over and over again in this church because I can't tell you enough how much you need to be released to understand that your impact in the kingdom is no lesser than anybody else's impact because of what you do or where you come from. God has saved us equally. The foot of the cross is placed on level ground. Everyone comes there with the same misgivings, the same issues, the same sin. And when we walk through that cross and get saved, we're all capable of the same things, and that is to glorify God. And so what does it mean to glorify God? I realize I haven't started my clock, so it's going to be quite long today. Mm. But it only starts now, so that's fun. Solar Dea Gloria, in my opinion, is the glue that holds all of the solars together. In fact, it's the glue that holds our lives together. It's this understanding that the life we live is not about us. It's not about our works. It's not about our faith. It's not about our own grace. It's not about us working our way into the kingdom. It's about the creator God of the universe. It's about his excellency, his holiness, and his fame. It's a life that's lived to reflect him in all that we do because he deserves the glory. I want to give you some quick examples of people that lived like this. You guys may be familiar with, um, I mean, I don't know, who's, who's German here? I mean, anybody with German heritage? There's a lot of Germans here, right? Like it. And so there's a great German musician. You might have heard of him. His name is Johannes Sebastian Bach, right? I've never heard of him until today. I'm just kidding. He looks really upset, though. I was just going to say to you, this guy, he looks fierce. Okay, he looks angry. That, those notes there really did a work on him because he looks, he looks quite sad. But I'm just kidding. I think that's how you had to do portraits in those days. You had to look serious. What's interesting about Bach, apart from the fact that he's probably one of the greatest classical music composers ever to live, right up there with his buddy Mozart, his sole purpose in life when composing music was to glorify God. He believed that the abilities that he had, the talents that he had, whether he was writing music for the church or whether he was writing music for the secular world, he believed that his ability came from God and therefore God deserved all the glory. 
And that's why you'll notice at the end of all of his musical pieces that he wrote, he wrote this solely, Deo Gloria. Because he wanted everyone to understand that this was not about him. It was about the creator God who saved him. Okay, so what about modern times? Let's go to a little bit more of a modern example. In the last Tokyo Olympics, this particular lady, her name is Tatiana Skunmarker. She broke the world record in the 200-meter Olympics uh, breaststroke. When I say broke the record, she literally demolished it, destroyed it. She is South African, so she is far greater than most swimmers. It's just it's the way we're born. I mean, like, it's actually not even a competition anymore. They should have just swimming for South Africans, right? Jim. See, now I've just lost my train of thought. Anyway, she was pretty awesome. She broke the record. But you know what was really amazing about this particular individual? Is that the spotlight that the Lord gave her by winning that race and by putting her name into the annals of history wasn't for her. She realized that in that moment she had an opportunity. And so she decided to give God the glory. Underneath her South African green swimming cap, you'll notice that white cap, which actually says in it solely, Deo Gloria. She knew that everything that she did in her life counted for something. And it wasn't about winning a gold medal at the Olympics. It was about reminding people that the glory belongs to God. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He said, with God, there are no little people and there are no little places. You see, Luther, Bach, and Tatiana remind us that in our seemingly ordinary lives, we're capable of doing extraordinary things. And the extraordinary things that we're capable of doing is representing the creator God of the universe to the world. We've often used this analogy before, but if you got a phone call today from the Queen of England and she asked you, would you be willing to come and represent me at some meeting or at some delegation? Most of us would fall of our chair. Maybe not, I mean, I know America and England had bad blood back in the day you guys were fighting. My point is, whether it's a Queen of England, whether it's a president of a country, whether it's a CEO of a massive billion-dollar organization, the moment they give you the opportunity to represent them, you feel honored, Right? We feel like, wow, I've got a job to do. I'm the representative of a king. How is it that we don't see the same privilege to represent the king of kings? We're the only people in all of existence that have the ability to walk with a creator stamp on our hearts to say, here we are. We are representing the king. His name is sealed on my heart, and I'm speaking on his behalf. That's the kind of extraordinary thing that we are able, able to do every day of our lives. Jeremiah said the same thing, just in a different way. He said this, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. This is God speaking to Jeremiah about his call. But he's speaking to us today, reminding us that every single one of us in this room were called by God, formed by God, and appointed by God, not just for, on purpose, but for a purpose. There is something that God has commissioned you to do on this earth. There is something that is placed in your heart. I love that. Uh, a beautiful scripture from the Ecclesiastes. It says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. He's given us a dream that's far greater than our natural, physical, earthly, temporal existence. A dream that says we want to serve our king to the best possible ability. When we live our lives for the glory of God, we have the privilege of doing something that counts. We have the privilege of living a life of infinite value. Not just value, of infinite value. And so let me ask you a question. How many of you believe here today, honestly, that your life is of infinite value? I mean, I see heads bobbing there. We, some of us believe it. I guarantee that at the same time that you're saying that, yes, I believe it, the enemy is whispering into the other ear saying, actually, you know, you, you just be serious. You don't count for nothing. I mean, these people don't know who you are. They don't know what you do, like in the secret chambers of your life, or what you did yesterday, the fact that you kicked the dog on the way out the house this morning. 
got angry with your wife. They don't know that. Your life is meaningless. It doesn't count for anything. Who are you kidding? If that's you, I want to remind you of something. Our lives count. They count for the king. No matter how you feel, no matter what sin you have in your life or what you, have, or what, what you don't have, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus died for you on the cross and that your salvation is secure and your life counts for him. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Later on in this verse, he speaks about how that actually brings glory to God. Have you thought about it? That everyone in this room, as maybe unqualified as you may feel today, has been given a gift. And it's not just any gift. It's a gift that's given to you by God. Some gifts are more uh, maybe visible than other gifts, right? In fact, Peter speaks about this in this verse. He says, speaking and serving gifts. Some of us have speaking gifts where we'll be more in front of people than other people, but some of us have serving gifts. It doesn't matter what the gift is. That's immaterial. The fact is God's given it to you, and he's given it to you so that you can serve one another. And in so doing, bring glory to God. And so here's the thing. The moment the enemy wants to stop the church from operating in the fullness that God has for it, what he does is he convinces the believers in the church that they're worthless. Because the longer he can keep you sitting on the sidelines, the longer he can keep you out the doors, the longer he can keep you at home in shame, in condemnation, the longer the church will stay immobile and stationary. But when you stand up and say, you know what, I believe in what the Bible says, I believe God's given me a gift and my gift is required in this body by somebody else. And the longer I withhold it, the longer I'm holding back what God wants to do. And so I'm going to bring my gift as small as it may seem to me and I'm going to offer it gladly to the body of Christ whether it's this church, another church, or anybody else out there that you meet. And so Solidar Gloria means that we know in Christ our lives both individually and collectively count for something. They count for God. Don't ever forget that. That is the highest thing that we could ever want to live for. The fact that our lives matter to God. Now I want to say this. It's easy for us looking back, and we've done this over the last six weeks, over you know, the church of the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, and think to ourselves, how is it possible that they got things so messed up? I mean, those guys must have been really dumb. Before we become prideful and think that way, we need to rem remember that we're no better than they are. Right? Let me sort of qualify that statement a bit. We live in a church culture today that supports building kingdoms. The only problem is it's not God's kingdom. It's people's kingdoms. We live it in a in a church culture today where charismatic gifts and personalities are lifted so high that you can possibly never attain to reach to the level that those people operate at. We live in a church culture today where people are celebrated and through their fame and notoriety, they have the ability to draw people away from God whether they do it intentionally or not. They might not do it intentionally. That was never their goal. But guess what? People look to them like as if they're God. We live in a church culture today who has adopted the world's metrics for success, the metrics of fame, fortune, growth at all costs, one that seeks strong charismatic leaders that are generally, a lot of, them in, a lot of the time, are narcissistic because we want to be controlled and led by strong individuals. But ultimately what happens is we also want to have people that are leading us that will satiate and tell us what we want to hear for us so our fickle hearts can just be comfortable where we're at. We live in a church culture where some of the oldest tenets of the faith, the core doctrines, the foundational statements in this Bible are no longer considered to be true. In church, where things like Adam and Eve are no longer just Adam and Eve because potentially God was confused and he created a lot more other identities. Or perhaps it's not just an identity thing. Perhaps it's the issue that there is no hell to go to anymore. And I know it sounds harsh and it sounds difficult, but here's the fact. If there is no hell, then why would there be a heaven? 
We live in a church age that teaches people that Jesus died on the cross because he wanted to show people how much he loved them. No, he died on the cross so he could pay for our sins. The atonement matters, friends. What Jesus did on the cross, that great exchange matters. If we lose the value of the atonement, that there was eternal punishment headed for us, then we lose the value of the cross. Jesus wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't a great teacher. He wasn't a kind man or a nice man. He was the Son of God incarnate on this earth who died for our sins. He is God. We live in a church culture today that's become me-centric, one where the gods that we worship are no longer the God of the Bible, but the gods of our own creation, the gods of wealth, the gods of success, the gods of massive Instagram profiles, empires, and the gods of us. Now, before you think I'm being critical of everybody else, you can say, well, Marco, it's easy for you to say. We're in a strip mall, right? You know, we don't have to worry about those things. Hallelujah. Amen. There's nothing wrong with a strip mall, guys. Let me just tell you, I thought a strip mall was something else when I was in South Africa. I was just saying that. It was really crazy, but I was like, I'm never going to have a church in a strip mall. It sounds very weird. I don't know why I'm saying that. My point being, you might think, Marco, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to. You can be so critical. For, I'm not trying to be critical on anybody else. I'm not trying to be critical on a ministry. I'm not trying to be critical on any individual. The reason why I'm bringing all of this up this morning is because if we don't contend for the value of sole, deo, gloria in this church and in our lives individually, and I'm speaking to myself, we will become all the things that I've just mentioned. You see, when we are not living for the glory of God, whose glory are we living for? We're living for our own glory, right? We're the masters of living for our own glory. And so I say this to you so we can hold each other accountable. Whether we stay in this strip mall for the rest of our lives is of no consequence. We can be very inward focused in a strip mall. You know what I mean? And so we need to hold each other accountable. When we live for the glory of God, we look at Him. We don't look at ourselves. And so for the remaining time we've got this morning, I want us just to go through a couple of points that will help us how to figure out or to stay focused on the glory of God alone. The first point to help us connect to the glory of God and to make that our primary focus is to remember that God has to get the glory in everything that we do. It's a simple statement, but really profound. Another way of saying this is that we need to strive in this church and in our lives to become nameless people and faceless people, which is swimming against the culture of the day, friends. Today, we don't want to be nameless and faceless. I don't know if you've ever looked upon an Instagram profile where there's no name and no face, right? No, there's a face and there's a name, and that name is what needs to be known around the world. We've got to send that name everywhere. We've got to share. We've got to repost. We've got to tweet. We've got to like it because our names matter. We build our kingdoms around personalities, right? Faceless means that we don't ever want our face on anything. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who he is. Being a nameless and a faceless people means that we exist to invite people into the relationship with Jesus Christ in this church. And yes, I'm not saying that we don't exist. Of course we do. God uses us. But where are we always pointing people back to? Is it a person? Is it a gift? Or is it the king? Paul puts it this way. I don't even know where I am. Gosh, I've just missed like half of I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, hang on. Here it is. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. Everything we do unto the glory of God. Not about us. Not trying to bring people to us. Not trying to point to ourselves. Pointing to him. He's actually also expanding on what Peter said earlier. Peter was telling us how our gifts are used to glorify God within the body. Well, Paul wants you to know that our gifts glorify God outside of the body too. And so the question I have is, how do we, knowing that everything we do in our lives is going to point people to something, 
It's either going to be us, it's going to be a thing that we do, it's going to be something, or it's going to be God. How do we live our lives every moment of every day for the rest of our lives, pointing people to Jesus and making sure he gets the glory? How do we do that? I don't know about you, but when I think of that, I get heartburn. For real, I don't know how to do that. I honestly don't know how to do that every moment of every day. I have failed today doing that. I failed this morning. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. I failed this weekend. My kids will tell you. I failed, you know, at moments in their life. I failed myself. I know that I haven't always necessarily displayed the radiance of the king. I haven't done it. And so how do we display the radiance of the king all the time? Without feeling condemned and guilty and letting the enemy come in and say, ha ah, you see, I told you, you suck. Well, John Piper puts it this way, and I love it, from his book, Desiring God. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You see, what this tells me is that glorifying God has less to do with what I do and more to do with who I love. Who is the object desire of my heart? Who is the most important person to me? Who is the person I cannot live without? And if it's anybody else, then God, you need to get that person out of your heart and get God on the throne. Yes, we're going to struggle in life. Sometimes we will be bad examples as believers. Believe it or not, it will happen. And that's for all of us here today. But if we make Jesus the object of our love, if we make him the very center of our focal point, then we will find that all of a sudden our fruit starts to follow. That people know us. They communicate with us. They're like, man, there's something about you that's different. And we can say, well, it's because I find my satisfaction in the king. How do we do that? How do we make Jesus our ultimate objective? How do we make him the chief love of our lives? Well, we do what he says. We know Christ. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. The great commandment to love. And teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we love God and we love each other. When we do that, all of a sudden we're glorifying God. Because that's countercultural. It means we become God-centered. And being God-centered means that we move away from the culture of the world. It means that we become the people in the world, but not of the world. It means that we become the people that when the world is screaming hate, we'll say, no, we'll love. It means that we become the people that when the world is cowering away in fear because of coronavirus or the next thing, we say, you know what, actually we are courageous people. We are not going to hide away in fear or for any other reason because the God that we serve is still on the throne. Nothing changed. The same God that was on the throne yesterday is the same God that's on the throne today. Living a God-centered life means that we swim against the culture of the day. It means that we do everything in opposite to the way the world wants to do it, not to be contrary to the world and just for the sake of it, but because the world that we operate in is an upside-down kingdom. You know, it's a kingdom that says where you give more, you'll get more, right? It doesn't work like that in the world. This is the kingdom that we serve. It says that the leaders in this kingdom are actually servants. This is not the kingdom of the world where we lift people up to places of high position and we just want to serve them for the rest of our lives. No, in this kingdom, the servants are the leaders. Living with God at the center of our lives means that we glorify him in all that we do. The second thing that we need to remember to glorify God in everything is to remember that our salvation is for his glory and not for our own. I'm going to say that again. Our salvation is for his glory, not our glory. I mean, we've all said this before. I've said it. I've preached it. Not preached it. I've said it while I was preaching at some point in my life. I know I have, and so I'm maybe repenting for it. But we've all said this statement. We've all said that if I was the only human being alive, Jesus would have died for me, right? Or we've said that to somebody else. If you were the only person alive, Jesus would have died for you. And whilst technically Jesus probably would have died, whether there was a thousand people or a hundred people or ten people or one person, that statement is factually incorrect. 
And the reason why it's incorrect is we put ourselves at the center of the equation. Jesus came to die for me. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, So at the, t- at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? That's talking about salvation. Every knee will bow. But then he says something interesting. He says, To the glory of God the Father. Jesus died for the Father's glory. Jesus died for His glory. Jesus died to rectify and to bring creation back to Him. And yes, he loves us. And yes, he did die and save us. But he died for his glory, friends. And that fundamentally changes the way we look at this. Because if we're at the center of God's story, there's a problem. If God is at the center of his own story, we're in a good place. And we operate around God. But so often we make ourselves the very center of everything. We put ourselves on thrones and we say, thank you, Jesus, for doing that thing for me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. In Ezekiel 36, 22, God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Ezekiel, and he says, Therefore, to the house of Israel, say this, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. The nation of Israel was in captivity. They were in bondage. God's project, his chosen people, the nation that he was going to fulfill what Adam and Eve felt to do in the Garden of Eden, rebelled, turned their, backs against, turned their backs against God and decided to operate in their own way. And so God says to them, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you back to your land. But guess what? I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for my name. Why so my glory may be lifted up? Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And when you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the, the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You see, the nations around Israel would know that Israel's God was the true God because it, would only, it could only take a God that was alive and almighty to save the nation of Israel. And so it was for his glory. You know, I don't know if a lot of you know this, but I grew up um, good family, great parents. I was a real reprobate as a child, a degenerate. I used to do things that were crazy. I hated people and hated life. It seemingly that's what it looked like because I wanted to destroy everyone around me. I became addicted to drugs at a very young age and did all sorts of stupid things to my parents and, you know, hurt my parents in a really bad way. And no matter what I would do or what anybody would try to do to me, I would never change. I couldn't get off the drugs. I would just stay on it. I'd go from rehab to rehab, from moment to moment. The longest I could stay clean was the time it took me to drive from the rehab center back to the dealer. Right? That was my life. I couldn't stay clean. And then, June 1999... Not only did I meet my beautiful wife, who I married today, 20 years, praise the Lord, but I met my Savior, Jesus Christ. In a small little rehab, in the middle of the desert, I met the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Literally, if there was a more unassuming church, it was that church, filled with drug addicts in the desert. It was wild. But God was there. And he showed me in that instant that he died for my sins, that he paid the price, that I could receive my salvation because of what he did. And that moment set me free. And it changed the course of my life. You see, what I couldn't do the day before and stay off drugs, all of a sudden I could do today. When God saves us, he saves us for his glory. Because when people look at us, they can't help but understand that. Looking at walking, talking miracles. No matter what your testimony is. And you have to know that. I'm not telling you this because you're like, oh, but you've got such a great testimony. We've all got great testimonies. Every one of us. There is no better or worse testimony. If you've grown up in a Christian home your entire life, loved the Lord from the day you were born, you know what I look up to you and say, hallelujah, because I don't know how you did that. I want to know how you did that. We are the miracles of God for His glory, not for our own glory. When I got saved, nobody in my family was a believer. Nobody. Today, three out of four of them are saved. 
God used my salvation for his glory. They went to him, not to me. I didn't save anybody. God did. Our salvation is for his glory, not for our own. The third thing that we need to remember to live our lives for the glory of God is to remember we're living for an audience of one. Artie Kendall writes this book. That's where this piece comes from. We've got it here at the church. If anyone wants a copy, I can get, get it into your hands today. It's called Living for an Audience of One. But the story I want to talk to you comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. It's literally the entire chapter, so I'm not going to read it all. But that particular story captivated me this past week. And what it's about, it's about three people. Naaman, who was the commander of the armies of Syria, who had basically invaded, was going to invade Israel. Elisha, the, the prophet, and Gehazi, his servant. Naaman has leprosy. He comes to Israel and he says to the king, I want to be healed of my leprosy. How can I get healed? Ultimately, he ends up in front of Elisha. Elisha, the great prophet. Elisha says to him, it's easy, Naaman. You want to get healed? Go and wash yourself in the, in the Jordan River seven times. Not once, not twice, but seven times. Dip yourself in, dip yourself in, come out, dip yourself in, go back again. Naaman initially gets a little bit upset because he's like, we've got rivers where I came from. You tell me to wash myself. You, think, you tell me I stink or what? You think I don't wash? Anyway, he eventually does what Elisha says. He goes and he dips himself in the water because his buddies say, listen, this is a man of God. Don't, don't play games here. He gets healed the seventh time, right? No more leprosy. Completely healed. Fine. Done. And you think, well, that's a great story. What does it mean? Well, Elisha speaks to Naaman after the fact. And Naaman says to him, I understand now that the God of Israel is the one true God. In fact, he praises God. Okay, he loves him now because he realizes that no other God, and I say God with a small g, could have ever done this. And then he wants to offer Elisha some money. He says, well, I'm going to give you treasure. What do you want? I've got silver. I've got gold. I've got all of this stuff. I want to give it to you. Thank you for healing me. And Elisha says, I didn't heal you. I didn't do this. I don't want your money. You don't have to pay me for what God does. God healed you. He gets the glory. And I think, great, yes, God gets the glory. Hallelujah. That's not the point of the story. What happens after that is what matters. Naaman leaves with all of his money. Gehazi, the servant, is like, man, Elisha, you are so dumb, bro. That guy had cash. I want some of his money. And so he runs after Naaman, catches up to him and says, my, my master, Elisha, made a mistake. We have people staying with us. They guess they need the money. We want the money for them. We want to bless them. Can you give me the money? And so Naaman gives Gehazi the money, and Gehazi thinks he's scored in this deal. He runs back home, and Elisha says to him, Gehazi, what have you done? Now, you'd obviously realize that Gehazi clearly wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Because after all, his boss was like the greatest prophet ever after Elijah. And so he obviously knew what he did. And ultimately, Gehazi gets punished because the leprosy that was on Naaman now becomes Gehazi's leprosy. He dies a leper. But that's not even the moral of the story either. You know what the moral of the story is? Is that Elisha does nothing about it. He doesn't chase after Naaman and say, Naaman, hang on, you've got to hold up. Let me tell you something. That Gehazi was acting out of his own will. I didn't want the money. Naaman went back to Syria thinking that Elisha needed the money. Naaman thought in his mind that Elisha actually wanted him to pay for the services he got. But Elisha never goes and vindicates himself. He doesn't defend his own honor. He doesn't say to him, no, it wasn't me. What does he do? Nothing. Why? Because he knows that God knows the truth. And that shows you what it means to live for an audience of one. Elijah, Elisha didn't have to vindicate his honor. He didn't have to try and defend himself. He didn't have to try and prove that he was a different person because he knew that God knew who he was. The point for us is if we want to live our lives for the glory of God, then he's got to be everything we live for. How often do we run after people and find and try and seek people's approval and want to defend ourselves? If somebody wrongs you, you want to try and make, make sure everybody knows your story, right? It wasn't me. I didn't do it. No. What the example is, is you just be still in the Lord, because God is our vindicator. 
last thing we need to do to keep the glory of God our central focus is to remember that only Jesus should ever be the object of our worship. We started this entire series, the first one we did with Isaiah chapter 6. We spoke about the glory of the Lord. I want to read just from verse 1 to 3. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These beings that are worshipping the creator God of the universe are not just any angels. These are fire angels. Fire angels. These are wild angels. Like These things are bright like the sun. But no matter how magnificent these angels look, they can't look at God because he is more magnificent than them on a multiple of whatever. He is awesome. He is perfect. He is radiating a light that they can't stand to see. But they teach us something. They teach us that Jesus should always be the object of our worship. You see, that, back then during Isaiah's time, those seraphs were worshiping God. Today, wherever you know the kingdom of God right now is heaven, they're worshiping God. Where will they be when the end is consummated? They'll be worshiping God. Don't believe me? Just read the book of Revelations. That they'll be there for the rest of eternity, worshiping God. That's all they do is worship God. And guess what's going to happen when we get saved? And we, or not saved, when we get saved from this earthly body of ours and get redeemed back to our creator God, is we'll be worshiping God for the rest of our lives too. Because we'll be confronted with His glory. I'm laboring this point to you because I want us to understand that how often are we worshiping something else? Honestly. I mean, we live in a world... We live in, you know, in this room, all of us are worshipping something. We live in a world where people are worshipping something all the time. It's just the way we've been designed. God designed us to worship Him, but because of corruption and sin, we've started to worship other things. The challenge with that is when we worship something, we become like it. And so if we're not worshipping God, we'll worship whatever we're becoming. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you worship your spouse or your partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. If you worship your family and children, you'll try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. If you worship your work and career, you'll be driven, a workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you'll lose your family and friends. If your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. If you worship money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry, jealousy about money, and you'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will ultimately end up blowing up anyway. If you worship pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you'll find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to escape strategies. If you worship relationships and people's approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always lose friends. In addition, in the fear of losing friends, you'll never tell them what you truly feel and so become a useless friend in the process. We become what we worship and what we worship gets the glory. And so if we want to give God the glory, we need to go back to God, right? All of us in this room, myself included, need to go back to God. Paul tells us how to do this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'm closing with this. Mark, you guys can come up. He says, and we all, with unveiled face. That term there, unveiled, is important. Remember the seraphim, these fire angels. They were worshiping God, but they couldn't look at God, right? We have an unveiled face when we behold the glory of the Lord. We are the only beings in all of creation that can look at God. We can actually look at Him. Why? Because Jesus died for us on the cross. When we're looking at him, we're looking through the blood of Christ. 
but we can behold the glory of the Lord. And when we do that, when we look to the creator God of the universe, you know what happens? Is we are changed from one degree of glory to another. You see, when we worship Jesus, when he is the center, when he's everything in our lives, when he's on the throne and he's the one, and he's the one that we're becoming more like, we bring God glory because the world again looks at us and says, how is it possible that in this corrupt, depraved, and messed up world, you're able to look more and more like something that I want to be? And we can say, well, it's simple. I'm just looking to Jesus who died for me on the cross. And in doing that, I'm able to see the visible manifest God of the universe. Now, I know all of us here this morning have allowed other things to get onto the thrones of our heart. Those things that we've worshipped have become, in some cases, many and varied. Can I ask you to stand with me? I feel like this morning, and specifically, specifically now, we need to declare that we will unseat anything that's made itself more important to us than displaying and radiating God's glory to the world. In addition, we need to stop worshipping anything that's not God. Whatever that thing is for you, for of us it could be different, but we've all got that thing, that thing that if I had to follow the trail of your life and just look at where all your time, your effort, your energy, your treasure, your money, your security has gone into, what would we find at the end of that road? Think about that. What would be at the end of the road? If we had to do an audit of our lives today, what would be that thing that we find at the end of that road? Would it be God or would it be something else? And I don't want to put anyone under any condemnation because here's the thing, right? The beautiful part about this story is all we need to do to be back on the right track is change what we're looking at. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so this morning, right now, it's as simple as shifting our gaze away from that thing and shifting it back to the Lord. And when it happens again that our gaze is shifted, we go back to the Lord and we say, Lord, keep our eyes on you. Holy Spirit, help me. Because God will be glorified in us as we continue to glorify Him. Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook.